Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fastman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Tesla is the world's biggest maker of electric vehicles, but a Chinese firm called BYD may soon challenge its supremacy, setting the stage for a competition that could shape car markets around the world. And you might not worry much about flushing a wet wipe down the toilet. Many are allegedly biodegradable, right? It's not as simple as that. There are so many going down British pipes that whole islands of them are forming in the country's rivers. Ew. First up, though. In November, a pop-up amusement park called Boulevard World opened to fireworks in Riyadh. It's a sort of Epcot center for the Middle East. Visitors can travel through bits of the park designed to look like different countries, France, China, India, Morocco, all clustered around a man-made lake. They can hop on nearby amusement park rides or head to attractions like a life-size Monopoly game. It's the type of event that was once rare in the Saudi capital, which has long been ruled under an austere brand of Islam. And it represents a massive shift occurring in Saudi Arabia and other countries in the Gulf Cooperation Council, a club of petrol monarchies. Across the Middle East, governments are shaking off social restrictions and opening up to the world in preparation for a future without the oil and gas revenue that fills their treasuries today. For decades, the six members of the Gulf Cooperation Council had pretty similar social contracts. Greg Karlstrom is our Middle East correspondent. Oil and gas revenue came in, it filled up their treasuries, and they distributed some of that money to citizens in the form of cash benefits, subsidies, and the promise of a comfortable lifetime job in the public sector. Migrants were brought in to do all of the other work. They stayed until they were no longer useful, and then they were sent back home. This was the model in the Gulf for decades, but it's slowly beginning to change. Why is that? Why is it changing? In the long term, the Gulf needs to diversify away from oil and gas. It knows that hydrocarbon revenue can't be the basis of an economy forever. And they also feel like they're in a good moment to do that right now because the war in Ukraine has driven up energy prices. It will give them a windfall of perhaps trillions of dollars over the next few years. So there's a very optimistic mood where the Gulf states feel like they have the resources at this moment to start diversifying their economies, to do that in a way that sets them up as global players in diplomacy and business. They want to have more independent foreign policies. 
step away from America a bit and also try to attract top global talent to not just work for a stint in the Gulf, but to settle down here, to move businesses here and to stay. But to do that, of course, requires making a number of changes. And this is what they're beginning to do. So what do those changes look like in practice and where are they happening? They're most visible in Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Those two countries account for 75% of the region's population and more than 70% of its GDP. On the cultural side, you see the changes most clearly in Saudi Arabia, which was an austere, conservative society. It has opened up quicker than anyone would have expected. Women have been allowed to drive, cinemas have been reopened. You now have concerts and raves and all sorts of cultural events that would have been unthinkable a decade ago. All of this is very popular with Saudis, but it also makes the country more attractive for multinational firms. That poses a challenge for the UAE, which has long been the business hub of the Gulf. And so it has, over the past few years, introduced civil marriage, allowed unmarried couples to live together. It's loosened up the laws around alcohol, and it's introduced new schemes that make it easier for people to obtain permanent residency, and even in some cases, to become citizens. On the economic side, it includes new taxes, value-added tax. The UAE will start collecting corporate tax this summer, income tax, subsidies for fuel and utilities have been reduced. So government's trying to raise new revenue and decrease spending. And what sorts of effects are these changes having? Broadly, they are redefining the relationship between citizen and state, and also between citizen and migrant. In a country like the UAE, migrants make up the vast majority of the population. Now, the cultural opening is broadly popular. Other changes are less popular. No one enjoys paying new taxes. And so, along with these economic and social changes, we've also seen a political shift where Gulf governments are trying to promote a new sort of nationalism. You look at Saudi and their identity was for a long time based on their religious identity, their role as the birthplace of Islam. But the past six years have seen a real push to promote Saudi national identity. You see that in the government's push to promote tourism and cultural events at historical sites, including pagan sites that predate Islam. Also in the UAE, there's been conscription introduced as a sort of more muscular nationalism that helps to build support for all of these changes and all of these new policies, even the ones that are not necessarily popular. Greg, earlier you mentioned the expectation that citizens have of cushy public sector jobs. I gather that's going away. How are they reacting to that shift? It is harder to fulfill, and it's very confusing for a lot of young people. The expectation was that a job in the civil service was your birthright, but that is no longer the case. And so young people find themselves stuck between a public sector that doesn't want to hire them anymore and a private sector that isn't ready to employ them yet. It's hard to find official figures in some countries, but there is double-digit youth unemployment in countries across the Gulf. Now, governments have tried to change that, and there are schemes in each Gulf country which push local firms to hire nationals, and if they don't, they risk being fined for falling short of their quotas for local employment. These schemes are not going nearly as fast as anyone would have hoped. You talk to Emiratis and they will complain that the private sector discriminates against them and that they would rather hire foreigners who can often be paid less and ask to work longer hours. When you talk to firms, they have other complaints about hiring Emiratis. They'll say the educational system is just not up to global standards. It falls behind education in many rich countries. And so 
people aren't prepared to go into the private sector workforce. Whatever the reason is, there are not many locals working in the private sector. And as a result, there is this growing problem with youth unemployment. Less of an issue in Saudi Arabia, where you've seen young people piling into the service sector over the past few years. You see Saudis now working as baristas, working as receptionists in hotels. But for many of them, they see this as something to do for a while while they're young, but they don't see this as a lifelong career because salaries in the private sector do not keep up with salaries in government. And as the private sector expands with those low salaries, what does cost of living look like for people there? The cost of living keeps going up. As we said, there are new taxes that have been introduced. There have been cuts to subsidies that leave everyone feeling pinched. And then you have this feeling, I would say, particularly in Saudi Arabia, that much of what's being built as part of these sort of mega projects aimed at economic diversification is aimed at a very small, very elite group of Saudis. So there's a project right now to develop a resort on the Red Sea that is meant to attract luxury travelers, the sort of people who can pull up in a mega yacht for a beach vacation. That will obviously exclude the vast majority of Saudi citizens from taking a beach holiday there. Many people are finding, yes, the country is opening up and this is exciting, but so many of the projects that are being built and being unveiled right now in Saudi seem aimed at a very elite audience that excludes many Saudi citizens. And Greg, what about the political effects of these changes? Are the monarchies that rule these countries getting nervous? In the short term, I don't think there's much reason to be nervous. Support for these governments remains fairly high. There's not a lot of pressure for any sort of political change. But there's a longer term concern here for governments across the region where they've done a good job so far making their countries more attractive to outsiders. But if you're a citizen, what you've seen is higher taxes, higher prices, and an increasing difficulty finding a well-paying and steady job. And there is so much emphasis on trying to make national finances more sustainable in a post-oil age. But the piece that they haven't figured out yet is how to continue providing a prosperous life for their own citizens. If they don't get that right, it will become a political issue in the Gulf. All right, Greg, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the race to electrify the world's car market, much of the attention is focused on the market leader, Tesla. The goal is to have a very compelling, affordable, in a mass market electric vehicle. Um, and I, I, feel, I feel pretty good about that goal. Initially caught flat-footed, traditional automakers have been playing catch-up. Now, even gas-guzzling Ferrari has plans for an electric supercar in the coming years. But there's a new competitor that's quietly and efficiently stealing a march on them all. The Chinese company BYD is set for massive expansion this year and may well give the world's most famous electric car maker a run for its money. Tesla may well be the world's biggest EV producer, 
And Elon Musk certainly doesn't think that there's any company that's a close second, but he's wrong. Henry Trix writes the Economist Schumpeter column. BYD is fast catching up with Tesla as a producer of EVs and may even overtake it this year. Tell us about BYD. How did it begin? It was founded by a Chinese man who hails from a farming village and grew up in utter poverty, but became a chemist and started a business supplying batteries for mobile phones. And that was the genesis of BYD. It's a company that is going from strength to strength. I mean, it it was a pretty slow start. It took 13 years to get to producing one million hybrids and EVs. But then it took only a year to get to the second million. And six months later, it's at three million. So it's really accelerating with electric speed, if you like. And because of its battery production, it already has factories in different countries around the world. So it has production bases, not just in China, but also in places like Brazil and Hungary and India. And in a sense, the model here is Toyota, which, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, also started off as a taxi company in Japan, then became a supplier of kind of relatively cheap vehicles around developing markets and then conquered the world. So, Henry, how has it been able to accelerate so quickly? What's it, what is it doing differently from other EV producers? People who know BYD say it's quite remarkable what an efficient producer it is. It's, first of all, incredibly vertically integrated, right? So it gets its own raw materials. It makes its own seats. Obviously, it makes its own batteries. It even makes its own semiconductors, which is very important at this time when, you know, there is so much tension over supply of semiconductors to China. It's also extremely automated. I spoke to one investor who had been to one of BYD's factories, and he said that the only humans that you saw on the factory floor were those who were either inspecting the end product or fixing the robots. And what does all of this mean for its its market share and its plans for the future? Well, its primary market is China and will be for the foreseeable future. China has a very dynamic EV market. 25% roughly of cars sold there are EVs and it's incredibly competitive. There's lots of challenges, but BYD appears to have some dominance there. It's also starting to expand internationally as a car maker. It's reportedly begun scouting for dealerships in the UK, and it's entering the notoriously difficult Japanese market. It's also starting to make serious money, which is going to help fund its expansion. Just the other day, it gave a preliminary estimate of net profit for last year, which comes in at somewhere around 2.4 to 2.5 billion dollars. Now, that's not as much as Tesla makes, but it's more than five times higher than what it made in 2021. And Henry, revenue and profit notwithstanding, how does it compare to Tesla as a company? It's quite a different company from Tesla in interesting ways. First of all, 
it has a huge variety of ranges. You know, as we know from Tesla, Tesla is focused really on a few different models, but it has lots. And whereas Tesla started very much at the high end of the market and is now sort of moving down and has recently kind of cut the price of its cars, BYD started at the lower end of the market and is moving up. So in a sense, they come at things from a different perspective. The markets are also different. BYD has not yet managed to crack the American market, so that's a big challenge for it. Meanwhile, Tesla does have a strong presence in the Chinese market as well as a manufacturing facility there. So on that sense, Tesla is much better positioned. So it sounds like the two companies are beginning what may be a long competition. How much will that competition be affected or its outcome be determined by politics? Well, you can't talk about China without bringing geopolitics into it. And BYD, I'm sure, knows this all too well. I mean, America has long been a place where it has been accustomed to apply protectionist policies to upstart car companies. Uh, Japan being a famous example, where Japan bashing in the 80s was, was really significant. And you know already there are tariffs that have been in place for the last couple of years affecting the production of Chinese EVs in America, including on things like battery components. If BYD does become serious about moving into America, which I'm sure it will, you just have to look at the American crackdown on Huawei or the growing concerns about data at TikTok to realise that it won't be an easy ride for it. So ultimately, what does all of this mean for BYD? I think we can assume that BYD, like other Chinese car makers, are coming. They're in the midst of a global assault. They have a tremendous competitive advantage in the sense that they've built up a lot of expertise in their home market, which is by far the world's biggest EV market. It looks as though BYD will crack Asia and Europe first, but it will come eventually to America. And, you know, for all the geopolitical turmoil that we've just spoken about, there is a real supporting factor for BYD, and that is that American firms are just as eager to crack the Chinese market as BYD is to crack the American market. So, as a quid pro quo, you would assume that neither will lobby too hard to stop the other from entering into their domain. So in that sense, I think that BYD does have some leverage. America is the land of opportunity in the car industry, and it needs the sort of mass market EVs, not just the really pricey ones, and mass market EVs are BYD's bread and butter. All right, Henry, thanks so much for joining us today. Great talking to you, John. We are just south of Hammersmith Bridge, walking along the shore of the Thames, looking for a new island. There's a bunch of islands 
in the Thames, Oliver's Island, the evocatively named Eel Pie Island, but the new ones are Wet Wipe Islands, and I've come, I think, probably to be pretty grossed out. I always take you on the, uh, on the best reporting trips, don't I, Jason? This is better than the sewer you wanted to put me down. Can I ask you a question? Have you seen the uh, wet wipe islands that are around here? I have not. I know there's a lot of like rubbish and stuff, especially at low tide in the sort of mud that yeah. sort of sits at the bottom of the river, but I haven't haven't actually seen any of them. There's the... evidently like reefs made of wet Problem. wipes. It's the yeah. grossest thing. Yeah, right, I have to go. The tide is against us. I had my heart set on stepping on one of these islands but it looks like today is not my day. The tide is up. We found where this is supposed to be on the north side of the river now, and there's there's ducks, there's water, there's there's no island. The island is submerged. Because of a, let's call it production mistake, um, the tide's up and we can't quite see it. My heart is is hurting. <laughs> go on, let's go to the pub. <laughs> I went to Hammersmith at low tide and stood on a hulking mass of smelly wet wipes. Caitlin Talbot writes about Britain for The Economist. It's the size of two tennis courts. And at first glance, it looks like a reef made of mud. But as you tread, you start to notice the fabric of hundreds of wet wipes interwoven with dirt, sticks and larger pieces of plastic. Each wipe is literally caked in mud. But as you pull each one off from the surface, they slightly ooze with a kind of fatty or oily residue, which I suppose is what gives them their moisturising or cleaning property when we use them. Entire islands made of nothing but wet wipes. Yes, it sounds ridiculous, but Britons really do love their wet wipes. And they dispose of 11 billion a year. You know, they're used to clean households and babies and hospitals, but they do block sewers when flushed. An industry body in the UK found that 93% of the material that obstructs sewers are actually wet wipes. But on a lot of packages of wet wipes are the notion that they're flushable or they're biodegradable. Is that not what's going on here? Sadly, even those that are labelled biodegradable still block sewers. The really nasty wet wipes are the ones that contain microplastics. They contribute the most to these islands, but even ones that are plastic-free, they're too thick, they do clog sewers. And with the label fine to flush, for instance, means that it's fine to flush in your own home. It's not going to block your toilet, but it will block your community's sewer and perhaps even lead to these islands. So it sounds like even the options that are designed to avoid this problem don't, and people just can't stop themselves flushing them, apparently. Is there room for a ban? Is a ban the way to, to stop the whole of the Thames being one big reef of these things? Well, campaigners are certainly pushing for a ban, and a few large UK retailers, such as Tesco's or Boots, have put a stop to the sale of all wipes that contain plastic. And many other shops have stopped plastic wet wipes in their own brand wipes. So we are seeing progress. And also alternative products such as wipe, which is a natural gel, and flush away is an entirely dissolvable wipe, which is currently being made. The government just released a list of a single-use plastic ban. And, you know, balloon sticks were included, but not wet wipes, which seems bizarre when you think about the use of those items. But the issue here isn't the use of wet wipes, it's the use of wet wipes in the intersection with the waterways. Isn't perhaps a, another policy angle here getting people just to stop flushing them? Well, it already is outlawed. It's actually illegal to flush anything that's likely to harm a sewer or interfere with the free flow of sewage. 
But Britons don't seem able to stop, and that becomes particularly clear when you're stood on top of these islands which have grown to the size of tennis courts and a metres deep. Well, at least that's the case if you go at low tide. And next time I will. Caitlin, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.